Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hi, I'm John Molesky, and this is America's 360, a program brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies, the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. And America's 360 is a collaboration among the Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. Well, during the first week of August, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan visited Brazil and Argentina. He was joined by senior NSC members, including Western Hemisphere Director Juan Gonzalez. They met with the respective presidents of both nations, as well as with multiple cabinet-level ministries. While a focus on the pandemic was, of course, front and center, topics such as climate and digital infrastructure were also on the agenda. And the trip provides us with an opportunity to take a look at the Biden administration's approach to the region and areas of shared interest that may provide the best opportunities for cooperation. So let's bring in our panel and hear what they have to say. Uh, Please say hello to Argentina Project Director Benjamin Gadan. Greetings, John. Hi, Benjamin. Brazil Institute Associate and Slater Family Fellow, Anya Prusa. Hi, John. Hi, Anya. The Canada Institute Director, Christopher Sands. Hi, John. Chris, hello. And Latin American Program Director, Cindy Arnson. Hi, Cindy. Hi, John. Well, great to see all of you again. In a previous life, our own Benjamin Gadan served as South America Director for the NSC. And Benjamin, what can we learn from this trip about the current and future state of relations between the U.S. and Argentina? Let's start with that specifically, and we can branch out regionally later. Yeah, I'd say the relationship is really at a a fascinating crossroads. You mentioned my time at the NSC. There, Argentina had just elected a very pro-American president, eager to advance in bilateral cooperation on virtually every issue under the sun. Things changed recently. Argentina elected a vice president who had served as president for eight years during a time of immense tensions between the United States and Argentina. Her running mate, who she chose for the position... Um, to lead Argentina, was not someone who'd held senior public office before. And it wasn't really clear whether or not we would see uh, distancing once again between the United States and Argentina. So far, I think the messages are still unclear, John. But what is clear is that the White House wants a close relationship. You mentioned that there was recent travel to South America. The National Security Advisor traveled there. But this was the second time that Juan Gonzalez, who's the senior advisor to President Biden for Latin America, had been in Argentina. And all the signals are that the United States is not looking for difficulties in this relationship, but sees a lot of promise. We could talk about what some of those elements might be. But I think as of now, it does appear that both sides are looking for friendship. The Argentines, who sometimes, when the Peronist Party governs, look to appeal to anti the American voters by artificially drumming up disagreements are not doing so at the moment. Mm-hmm. We definitely will come back to you to hear some of those details of, of what the U.S. might be thinking. Anya, talk to us a bit about Brazil and the U.S.-Brazil strategic partnership. Thanks, John. So for the last six months, the Biden administration has been very focused on the issue of the environment when it comes to its relationship with Brazil. And this trip really marked a broadening of that conversation both in terms of, you know, the actors with whom the U.S. government was engaging. Uh, We saw that Jake Sullivan met with um, some of the Brazilian governors, for example, of of the states in the Amazon, but also in terms of the issues that were being covered. So, you know, climate change and the environment were definitely on the table. But we also saw conversations about, you know, 5G infrastructure, China, Brazil's ascension to the OECD, 
you know, Brazil's relationship with NATO. So a whole host of issues. And one in particular that gained a lot of press following the visit was U.S. support or the U.S. emphasis on Brazil's democratic institutions. Uh, we've seen in Brazil in recent weeks that President Jair Bolsonaro has been coming out very strongly saying he has concerns that, you know, Brazilian elections might not be safe and secure. This has been widely rebuked. He's, he's not bringing any evidence to the table to support this. And so we saw during the visit that, you know, the U.S. government really reiterated that it, it has full faith in Brazil's ability to carry out a democratic electoral process. A, a quick follow-up on you on this notion of rigged elections or unfair elections. You know, it almost now seems to be the playbook. If you lose or if you're trailing in the polls, you, you preemptively cry foul. Do people in Brazil take it seriously? Well, people take it very seriously in the sense that whenever you have a president who is, is undermining or seeking to undermine confidence in elections, that is a very serious thing. And President Bolsonaro has been, you know, attacking the Brazilian Supreme Court. Brazilian Congress is getting roped into this. In fact, on the very same day that the Brazilian Congress was voting on an electoral uh, law amendment, President Bolsonaro held a military parade in front of the presidential palace, which is directly across from Congress. And so this was seen as being an attempt at intimidation, right, of one of the co-equal powers of government. So people in Brazil are taking this very seriously. That said, you know, and I can't stress this enough, Brazilian elections have consistently been free and fair since the return to democracy in the 1980s. There is no evidence of fraud in past elections, and there's no reason to believe that there will be fraud in 2022. Thanks. You know, I, I should also tell our listeners, those who listen closely, because Anya Prusa is sitting in the honorary Ricardo Zuniga seat because he was one of the original panelists on this program. And now Ricardo was part of that delegation in his his role as a special envoy to the region. Cindy, it, a two nation visit. And we've heard from our, our regional experts on Argentina and Brazil. But when you look at the broader picture of the entire region, is there anything that's revealed about Biden administration policy? And is that policy coherent enough to even talk about it in those terms? Thanks for the question, John. I think that Biden policy, for the most part, has been a disappointment. There was a great expectation given his familiarity with the, with the region, not only from his time as a senator, but also his time as vice president, when he was the point person for the Obama administration in, in responding to the first surge of unaccompanied uh, children from Central America in 2014, that there would be a lot more activity um, on the region. Now, granted, the assistant secretary for Latin America, Brian Nichols, has still not been confirmed by the Senate. I think that this is truly an abuse of power the Senate clearly has the constitutional right of, of uh, advising consent on these nominations, but they are held up over and over again and quite routinely for matters that have nothing to do with the qualifications of a particular individual. And this, of course, hampers not only uh, administration appointments, but also in the region, the ambassadors who are uh, appointed to, to serve and represent the United States. But I think in addition to what Congress is is not doing in, in this case. There has been a kind of a reactive mode in response to the assassination of the Haitian president, in response to the massive and unexpected protests in Cuba. There's been positive statements and declarations in response to the repression in Nicaragua and the 
the sort of steps forward in a dialogue in Venezuela. But overall, I think what South America most needs is not so much attention on climate, it's attention to vaccines and the importance of vaccines to economic recuperation. And both of those things are intimately linked to the future of democratic governance. So the administration will have a democracy conference later this year, uh, will host an environmental summit, a climate summit, and later sometime next year will be hosting the Summit of the Americas. And there's a sense that, you know, that the administration in a certain way is waiting for those things to happen rather than being out there building towards a summit. And finally, and I hope we'll get back into this some more, the visits to Brazil and Argentina, I think, were mostly motivated by this concern of China's role in the region and specifically the flirtation between both Bolsonaro and, and Fernandez with Huawei in uh, constructing a 5G network. So the timing, I think, was very much pegged to that. But in order so reacting, to, not not initiating. Exactly. You have to, if yeah. you're going to compete with China, you've got to be proactive. You can't just try to convince people of how much better the United States and the West is to Chinese investment and finance and all the rest. Yeah. Chris, talk about, to us about how Canada fits into the equation when we look at the Americas. I mean, the, the first foreign leader that President Biden met with was Justin Trudeau. Is there, not lockstep perhaps is too strong a term, but is there general agreement between Canada and the U.S. as they look south? Well, sometimes. It really depends on the issue. Uh, Canada has, for example, maintained relations with Cuba throughout the embargo. Canada often uh, focuses within the hemisphere on Caribbean countries with which it has a old British Commonwealth or old uh, French Empire tie um, and has been a champion for those countries in the OAS and other forums. But Argentina, Brazil, um, Chile, all the three countries of the Southern Cone are very important in, uh, in Canadian thinking because these are countries with which Canada meets at the G20. They're countries that are also have mining, agriculture, Several in several sectors, they compete with the Canadians internationally. And although there's a great deal of distance between the two ends of the hemisphere, I think that over the years, many governments, including the Argentine government, as Ben was talking about when they were a bit more anti-American, see the Canadians as the alternate North Americans, the other Americans that they can talk to. And so for aid projects, uh, big development initiatives, when they can't get much attention out of Washington, as was the case during the Trump years, they can always get the Canadians to discuss with them maybe projects and try to bring the Americans around. So Canada is it has the potential to be a player. But with that, and this is the trick, come expectations. And I think one of the challenges for Canada is they have a lot of opinions about what Brazil should do with its rainforests and, and what Argentina should do with its finances. But they don't have a lot of actual money to contribute. They're not, they're not bringing anything to the table other than criticism. And I think that can get Canada sometimes in trouble with its neighbors. Uh -huh. Opinions can only get you so far, right? You bring some funding, bring some funding. Exactly. So there's so much to follow up on. I, I barely know where to begin, but I, I, want, I promised Benjamin we'd come back to talk about what are some of these elements. But also now in the shadow of, of Cindy's answer, which is saying primarily the, the interest in Argentina and Brazil was in many ways driven by reaction to China. 
Yeah, I'm not sure I entirely agree. I mean, I do think U.S. foreign policy in, in the developing world is often framed in terms of China. I think that's absolutely true, both on the Hill and in Foggy Bottom. But I don't think that was the narrow motivation there. What I would say is it's a very difficult place to navigate diplomatically right now. Latin America is very inward focused. It's been bludgeoned economically and in public health terms by the pandemic. There's ideological diversity within the region that makes it difficult for the region to agree on virtually anything. There's a lack of leadership. I mean, the Mexican government has virtually no foreign policy. The Argentines, it's not very clear whether it's more of a South-South focus or or potential hostility to the United States. Um, Brazil, you know, in the United States have a lot of policy differences. Anya has laid out a few of them. So I think it's quite difficult to navigate the region. I think the administration has tried, right? They've reacted to the migration crisis. And I think they have found that the environment and climate are an issue where you can generate, maybe outside Mexico and Brazil, some real consensus on an issue that really does matter. So what I would say is even beyond the China question, the fact that the White House and Argentina have come to an agreement on a major regional climate conference, well, I applaud that. I mean, I think it is an important issue. Um, and it is a way to bring Latin Americans together under U.S. hemispheric leadership. And, and unfortunately, there are not many issues right now that you could say are possible for a hemispheric agenda. We'll see what happens. Cindy mentioned the upcoming Summit of the Americas and what's on the agenda for that conference. But as of now, I mean, I think it's good that the administration is paying attention and it's good that it's taking diplomatic risks in places where the White House is not always welcome. Cindy, does the waiting for the summit scenario create unrealistic expectations for the summit? Well, I think it always creates unrealistic expectations that long, you know, in previous summits, there was a lot of questioning of the value of of these meetings. And I think the bottom line was that it's important that people get to know each, each other, see each other face to face, have conversations, and not necessarily focus on what's going to be the grand outcome. So that that really is, I think, a value of hosting the summit. The fact that the United States is going to host it is is important. And it was supposed to be held this year. And the postponement has to do with the fact that people really wanted to be able to have those face to face interactions and not just, you know, look at each other on little tiles on a Zoom screen. So that's that's the good news. But I but I do feel that there is much more needed and and I and I have to say and give the administration credit that you know of the vaccines that have been donated thus far uh, an overwhelming portion have been given to Latin American countries but it's still a tiny amount of what's necessary a country like Colombia that is a key US ally in South America has received 5 million vaccines well Colombia is a country of 48 million people so you know it's not that the United States is the only one responsible for all of this, but I just think that there could be much more of a proactive response in helping countries get back on their feet. Because ultimately, you know, if you're worried about authoritarianism, you're worried about populism, all of those things become much more probable when people are not seeing the results of a functioning democratic system. What do we know about public opinion or regional expectations and reactions, are they mirrored in what Cindy's expressing, this disappointment or this sense that perhaps opportunities are being lost? Do we know enough yet? Is there feedback from the region in that regard? I think initial polling showed a lot of satisfaction with the election result. I think there was a sense of real values misalignment under the last administration and a you know a sense that the region wasn't prioritized by the Trump administration. I mean, President Trump 
visited the region once in four years. It was for a one-day G20 event in Argentina. He was the first U.S. president not to attend the Summit of the Americas, which we've been discussing here. So I think there was a sense that it just was not on the radar. And so there was optimism about the new administration. We'll see if the region is as disappointed as Cindy is so far in the administration's follow-through. But I think at this point, there is still this well of goodwill in Latin America that the Biden administration can take advantage of in promoting U.S. interests in the region. Chris, Anya, any thoughts on this? What expectations were for Joe Biden? I mean, Cindy mentioned the fact that this is a guy who probably comes into the the White House knowing more foreign leaders than anyone who has previously occupied that post, with the possible exception of George Herbert Walker Bush. Well, I think in Brazil, you know, obviously the Biden administration had a more complicated relationship from the start, right, with the Bolsonaro administration, because Bolsonaro was so closely linked to Trump. That said, I I do think Brazil still looks to the United States. I think the Brazilian government is still very interested in in developing a closer relationship with the United States, especially on trade. You know, Cindy mentioned China. And I, I think there's still some degree of skepticism within the Brazilian government when it comes to China. So they would be interested in, you know, balancing, I think, Chinese influence, whether it's on 5G or trade or other issues. The the challenge is, is really finding areas where there will be concrete pathways, right, for collaboration. So Brazil has a long tradition of military cooperation and, and training with the United States, scientific and, and technical collaboration. And these are possible avenues. But I do think that, you know, the fact that, that Biden isn't Trump is itself, you know, a challenge to the Biden administration's policy towards Brazil. I'd say it's interesting watching how the Canadians have approached Biden. They had exactly the same reaction. We're so glad it's not Trump. Here's somebody's familiar. Canadians always tell the story about how after the 2016 election, Joe Biden went to Ottawa and had a dinner and toasted then Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Uh, all very positive. So expectations were sky high at the start of the administration. But as we saw early on, the Keystone pipeline was canceled. There were problems over line five, the Enbridge uh, pipeline that has been big priority for the prime minister. So in a weird way, the expectations weren't met. Now, they never would have expected those things out of Trump, but they, they suddenly had better expectations and then no delivery. So the challenge is getting past that sort of disappointment and seeing where the potential still lies. And in a complex relationship as the U.S. has with Canada, you can often go below decks, talk to different cabinet ministers, talk to officials on the ground. But I think for some of the countries in Latin America, that it all starts with that first conversation with Biden. It starts with that personal contact uh, before it can go much farther. And if there's no rapport, it becomes really tricky. Cindy, anything you've heard take the edge off your disappointment or... Are we not buying it? Tell Benjamin why he's wrong. <laughs> no, I was going to say, I mean, I I think that, as Benjamin says, there is tremendous goodwill towards the United States, towards the Biden administration, but a sense, quite frankly, that the priorities have been domestic and that now that big ticket issues like Afghanistan or whatever are going to, you know, take up a lot of the political space, if you will, of of the administration, that Latin America, as usual, will be relegated to the back, 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 back burner. And as an example, I'd like to just mention Chile, another key U.S. ally. Currently, uh, the, the current president is from the center right. Chile has China as its number one trade partner. Chile has just announced that it will be producing 
the Sino, China's Sinovac vaccine at a factory outside of, of Santiago. This is a center-right government. This is not a left government that has anything in common with the Chinese government. The United States has not had, had an ambassador in Chile for two years. So, you know, what does that tell you? And what does that say to the Chileans about the, you know, the way the United States views them as a regional ally and a longstanding friend and one of the first, certainly South American countries, to have a free trade agreement with the United States I mean, on a whole host of issues. Very close relationship, no ambassador. Benjamin, I wonder, you know, America has this compulsion to kind of do chunking when we think about the world, right? We talk about Europe, we talk about Asia, we talk about Africa, we talk about, you know, the Americas. I mean, it's big chunks of dozens and dozens of countries. Are, are we expecting too much to talk about a coherent policy toward a region, especially when life intervenes in the case of, in this case, nature, whether an earthquake, tropical storms on the way. So any plan we might have could change on a dime when nature speaks. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a long time criticism of the U.S. administration, no matter which party is in charge, that Latin America is forsaken because there's other regions that are more of a threat to the United States, more of an economic opportunity, um, create more crises that dominate the attention of the National Security Council. Um, and I think there's a lot of diversity within the region. So as you point out, John, it's hard to think about the region in a cohesive way. What I will say is the Biden administration has appointed, you know, the vice president, Kamala Harris, as a special envoy, essentially, to Latin America. It's a role that President Biden played when he was in the White House as vice president. I think that's a signal of the region's importance. You saw the administrator of USAID, Samantha Power, in the region recently. You've seen the vice president travel to Mexico and to Central America. I think you're seeing signals that Latin America matters and that the administration recognizes it as a critical place for supply chains, a critical place for energy, a critical area for allies and international challenges including uh, combating climate change. So I think you're seeing a lot of good signals. I think Cindy's absolutely right. The Biden administration, first and foremost, is focusing on democratic and economic challenges, public health challenges at home. I think that's understandable priority for him. And in doing so, he maybe has delayed some of the diplomatic engagement, some of the trade negotiations that we would like to see front-loaded in the new administration's agenda. But uh, to me, I see a lot of positive signals that this is an administration that will live up to the expectations that we have expected and heard from the region. Cindy, did you want to respond to that? Yeah, I mean, I certainly keep an open mind and I hope for the best and, and the people, you know, working for Joe Biden on Latin America policy are terrific people with a very deep knowledge of the region. In the case of the vice president, basically, she is not in charge of Latin America policy altogether. She's in charge of Central America. And the trip to Mexico was to get Mexico's cooperation in helping the United States manage the immigration challenges. Central America is a domestic political issue for the United States in the same way that immigration has always been. So I would like to see that attention grow in towards South America and could not agree more. There is no one size fits all policy that's possible for the region, given the diversity of the countries there. Chris, did you want to say something? I thought I... Yeah, I did. One of the things that I think is always hard to convey is the role that Congress plays in all of this. And we have a very tightly divided Congress, which means someone like Vice President Kamala Harris, who serves as the president in the Senate, is often got to be in Washington. And everything takes more time, more negotiation, whether it's an aid package or an infrastructure bill here. 
naturally from abroad, you think about the president, that's the, the top person, that's the executive. And yet our system of government in Washington is so complicated that I think we overlook the influence that Congress has. When Congress is this tightly divided, domestic considerations will always be top of mind on the president's desk, which is not to blame anybody. It's just the way our system works. And maybe that is the best way to temper the expectations of our neighbors, North and South. We're almost out of time, but I want to save a minute for each of you for a quick thought on, you know, we talked earlier about, or at least I teased in my open, that we'd be looking at areas where cooperation was most possible. So I'm wondering what each of you think is sort of the low-hanging fruit, so to speak. You know, are there areas that the U.S. should be building its uh, strategy on from the inside out, whether it's climate, whether it's migration, whether it's democratic governing or, or, you know, governance, what what might it be? Are there areas where their traction can be gained? Benjamin, let's start with you. Yeah, I think one thing I would emphasize is that there is no easy shortcut to good relations with the United States. I think it's tempting in the region right now to do exactly what you're suggesting, John, which is to say, okay, we'll agree on climate. Please ignore corruption. Please ignore democratic backsliding. In the case of Argentina, please ignore the fact that we won't fight for human rights right now in Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, but we will talk to you about climate and we'll host a summit. I think, you know, that works in the short term, but for a fundamentally strong relationship, you need to work across the board on areas of shared values. And I think the region will have to acknowledge that at some point with the Biden administration. Yeah, good points. Great points. Anya? Well, I think it's important that, you know, when the U.S. looks to Latin America and individual countries in Latin America, that it looks to build a strategic relationship rather than a relationship that's just focused on specific issues. I mean, we've seen, you know, time and time again with Brazil that the relationship has ebbed and flowed. It's been good. It's been bad. But there hasn't been, you know, a consistent push to develop meaningful institutional relationship between the two countries. And I think, you know, for those of us who who follow Brazil, that's something that we would really like to see going forward. Yeah, we have a growing consensus here. No shortcuts. Cindy? Yeah, sure. I would say that in terms, I, I agree with Benjamin that the shared focus on values on democratic governance is important. There are a lot of countries in the region that we all know obviously don't fit into that club. But, you know, progress on climate, on Renewable energy sources is an area where I think a lot of people are in agreement. Vaccinating populations, feeding people that have fallen back into poverty after leaving poverty, you know, somehow addressing the tremendous increase in need in the region, I think, is a shared objective. And even in places where we have great differences with the government, there's always been an opening for this kind of people you know, helping needy people type assistance. And we should very much to continue that. These are heavy lifts, Chris. Can we project some Canadian optimism onto this picture? Well, I, you know, I think there are some areas where the U.S. has been has been trying to lead, but where we need to do more. And one of them is cybersecurity. When we're talking about the technology that protects our democracy, but also deals with misinformation and disinformation, the U.S. has a technological lead. These these are countries that will need to learn how to protect their systems. Multinationals t- can take care of themselves. But I think we should have a dialogue about security. It is all about this return of great power competition, taking our eyes and focusing it on the Chinese or the Russians. But we have to remember that the the folks who are generally aligned with us will need our help to uh, to protect them against these kinds of attacks, which 
so far have been focused on the U.S. and on Europe, but they could certainly become a problem and it's better to get out ahead. That's a constructive agenda. I don't know if it's optimistic, though, John. Might be a little pessimistic. Well, yeah, listen, listen, the problems are the problems, right? It's a big challenge. Uh, thank you for helping us sort through it. Anya, Benjamin, Cindy, Chris, we hope to see you next time and we'll see what we'll be talking about then. Uh, until then, for this episode of America's 360, I want to thank Oscar Cruz, Cecily Fasanella, and Zavi Delgado for their work as producers of the program. It was edited by Sam Vicroy, and all of this was done with the assistance of Emily Allen, Isabella Canava, James Chabin, Barbara Shamati, and Manuela Jimenez. Thank you to all of you. We can't do it without you. And of course, we want to thank you, the listeners. We hope you enjoyed this edition of America's 360 and that you'll join us again next time and maybe even tell us what you'd like us to speak about in future issues or episodes. Until then, for all of us at the Wilson Center and for the America's 360 team, I'm John Molusky. Thank you for joining us. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.